I'm Natasha Sinyanovich, and this is The Passion of Ethel Rosenberg, Act Two. God, I hate this cage. They call it the Women's House of Detention. I call it Ethel's House of Horrors. The first few days I was here, you'd have thought I had smallpox. The other women sort of circled around me like they were afraid of catching something. Who's this white hussy with the uptown ways? <laughs> she think her crotch don't stink like ours? Well, ain't she the fancy one? But I won them over. They're my buddies and the best thing in this dump. Except for my letters from Julie. The girls and I, we, we play ball up on the roof during our rec period. I go to all their religious services and sing along with them. When I've got money, I buy treats from the commissary and we all share. What kind of commie would I be if I didn't share? Most of my buddies in here are Negro women. Sadie's in for prostitution. Charlotte stabbed her boyfriend. And Cinnamon was busted for bootlegging. A few of them knew about me from the newspapers and they weren't too sure they wanted to be within 10 feet of a communist. When I was a kid, Black people knew that the Communist Party was about the only reliable political friend they had. It was always organizing and demonstrating to get them better wages and stop the lynching that was going on everywhere down south. Remember the Scottsboro Boys? They were the nine colored boys accused of raping white women, and they came this close to being lynched. But the party saw how they were being framed and raised hell until most of them were finally acquitted. It was the Scottsboro case that turned Julie toward communism. All through high school, he was a devout religious student who dreamed of being this very learned and respected scholar. He loved the Jewish traditions of reason and fairness. When he saw how those Scottsboro boys were being railroaded, he went to his rabbis, these men who were his idols, and he, he asked them to speak out against the injustice of it. Not one of them would. Not a one. After that, Julie wanted nothing to do with these phonies who claimed high moral principles but didn't have the courage to practice them. That's the kind of guy Julie is. Brilliant big-hearted, not to mention a real peach of a guy. For me, politics came after I got out into the world and saw how working people were being taken advantage of. I wanted to go to college, but the depression put an end to that. My mom never understood my dreams. Her idea was that I would quit school as soon as my body made me marriageable and then I'd never need to develop a mind. Men had minds. Women had headaches and backaches and regrets. Lots of regrets. But not me. I knew what I wanted. So I, always the self-improver, took a secretarial course and just breezed through the classes got a job at a packing and shipping company for 31 and a half cents an hour, which wasn't too shabby during the Depression. I started to see the connection between how hard we worked and how poor we lived. My job was backbreaking, especially in the afternoon when the orders piled up. 
Everywhere you looked, there were stacks of packages waiting to be loaded and shipped. And we girls had to write receipts for every single one of them. Sometimes my writing hand looked like a chicken's foot by the end of the day. If we had to work overtime or on the weekends, which we often did, we weren't paid extra for it. So when an organizer from the Ladies Apparel Shipping Clerks Union came around, you can bet I was at the front of the line to sign up. Nobody gets rich on his own. The self-made man, ha, forget it, there ain't none. Sure, a lot of them come up with great ideas, but great ideas are a dime a dozen. I bet every one of you's got a couple of them right now. Am I right? But they don't make you rich until working stiffs turn those ideas into things you can sell. You know, products and services. We workers are always the first to get screwed and the last to get rewarded. If a company falls on hard times, we get the axe first. If the company makes a record profit, then it goes to pay the investors, or raise management salaries, or buy more labor-saving machinery so it has fewer of us workers to pay. It's a crime, or it's... Listen, lady. I put everything I own into this company, and I work around the clock to keep it going. You put in your eight-hour shift and go home. Well, the labor I put into this job is everything I own. And as far as working around the clock, then pay yourself three times what you pay me, and not a penny more. Well, what did you expect from a communist? Recipes? The company fired me for being in the union, but I complained to the NLRB, which the Roosevelt administration had just set up, and I got my job back. But I didn't stay long. I got a better deal as a stenographer for the Bell Textile Company, and I promptly joined the union there. They couldn't keep little Ethel down. (laughs) Because my new job paid more, I was able to afford singing lessons at a hefty two bucks a piece. I had heard this choral group, Scola Cantorum, that made some of the most beautiful music I'd ever heard. I wanted to be a part of it. The catch was you had to know how to read sight music before you could audition. That was all new to me, but I wanted so much to sing that I taught myself. I wasn't a wizard at it, but at the age of 19, I became the group's youngest member. The icing on the cake was that I got to sing with the chorus at Carnegie Hall. After that, They asked me to sing at a benefit for the International Seamen's Union, which, as you might have guessed, was on strike. Beautiful dreamer, awaken to me. Starlight and dewdrops are waiting for thee. Sounds of the rude world heard in the day. Lulled by the moonlight have all passed away. When I finished singing, this tall, good-looking guy came up to me and introduced himself, said his name was Julius Rosenberg and that he loved my voice. That's how it all started. Julie was 18 and I was 21. We were magnificent. 
We were communists, and that meant we were the good guys. We were freedom fighters, putting our lives on the line for the working class and agitating against the fascists who were taken over in Spain and Italy and Germany. We had a world to save. Oh, every day I spent with him was glorious. Nights in here can drive you crazy. The lights are out. The cells are mostly quiet. There's nothing to keep your mind from whirling out of control. But then it dawned on me. I realized I could think my life through and plan how I'll change things once I get out. When you're raising babies and cooking meals and visiting neighbors, going to party meetings, walking the picket line, your brain gets pretty scattered. You think you're enjoying life, and you are, in a way, but you're enjoying it in little pieces that don't quite fit together. Once I got used to the fact that I had absolutely no power to change my situation in here, a kind of calm came over me. Do you have any idea how good it feels never having to do a lick of housework. <laughs> Not that I was winning any prizes before. Sometimes our apartment looked like a dress rehearsal for the Dust Bowl. But Julie didn't care. He had me. Often. Not long after we got married, Julie got this great job with the Army Signal Corps. Problem was, he had to travel a lot. So I was alone in New York and still practically on my honeymoon. But I was proud of Julie. And if I had to curl up in bed and cry sometimes or climb the walls without the aid of a ladder, I could take it. And when he did get home, we made the most of it. On March 10th, 1943, while Julie was in Florida on a mission for the Signal Corps, yours truly although suffering unbearable agony, as well as some serious second thoughts about the whole biological process, released onto the world an adorable little time bomb she named Michael Allen Rosenberg. He was a handful from the start, opinionated, demanding, a tendency to get sick with something new every other day. Naturally, he stole my heart. So here I am with a kid, Julie's gone, and there's really nobody to advise me on what to do with the new arrival. I certainly couldn't look to my mother. That's when I discovered Parents Magazine. I know, I know, how bourgeois, right? But listen, it's always been my nature to go to the experts for advice. Whether it's Karl Marx to explain the contradictions of capitalism, or Dr. Feldkamp to tell me how to raise my kids without destroying their egos. With Michael, oh, I needed all the help I could get. Long before your child is able to talk, he is providing you a wealth of important information. You must listen to him. This was nothing like the upbringing I had. Here's this magazine teaching me that the child is sometimes a better judge of what he needs than the mom or dad. When to sleep, when to eat, how to act with adults and other children. You're Mashogana! You're making him a little monster! But to me, the question was always, am I raising my child for my own good or for his? 
If that sounds like a quotation from Parents Magazine, it probably is. I've committed whole articles to memory. I've not been a perfect mother, not by a long shot, but no one's ever tried harder. And it's hard when your head is pounding and you're wondering how you're going to pay your bills and you're trying. You are trying. Michael, you're making me crazy. Stop it. Stop it. My head's going to explode. No, we can't go out now. I told you a thousand times. Stop shouting. Michael, Michael. Shut up. Oh, Michael. I'm so sorry. Mommy didn't mean it. I'm sorry. When I get out of here, I'm going to be the best mother you ever saw. Other moms will be asking me for advice. They'll be writing books about me. All right, maybe not books, but I promise you I'll be famous around the neighborhood. I got pregnant with Robbie when Michael was three. Oh, it was a difficult pregnancy and money problems didn't help. The same year Robbie was born, the Committee for Un-American Activities started scouring Hollywood for communists, going after big stars like Charlie Chaplin and Orson Welles. They even pointed fingers at Yip Harburg, of all people. You know, he wrote that famous communist marching song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow? I suppose Russia was the land that he'd heard of once in a lullaby. It wasn't always like this. Just before the war started, I read a book called Mission to Moscow. It was all about the marvelous advances the country was making under Joseph Stalin. They were building dams and railroads and cultivating these enormous farms to feed their people. Women were on equal footing with men, making political decisions and driving tractors and locomotives. The future looked stunning. The Soviet Union was a model society that had a lot to teach the world. They made a movie of it. Did you see it? It was even sunnier than the book. There is a scene where the American ambassador flatters Stalin for all he's accomplished. Back then, American politicians had nothing but good things to say about Russia. The press often referred to Stalin as Uncle Joe. And he does look like everyone's favorite uncle. How such a great country and a great man can become poison almost overnight. Julie got fired from the Signal Corps because of his party connection. He fought hard to get his job back, even denied he'd ever been a communist. But it didn't work. It's been trouble after trouble ever since. He knows engineering, but he doesn't know how to make it pay off. So we just limped along financially. I wasn't much help to the family's fortune, so there we are buying groceries on credit or borrowing food from our neighbors. Wouldn't you think that if we'd really been Soviet spies, important spies, Russia would have paid us enough to live on? Now comes the trial. I lie here trying to get some sleep, and sometimes I imagine seeing these newspaper headlines about us in, in big two-inch letters. Julius and Ethel, home with kids. 
or Adam Duo walks as FBI squawks. America is up to its ears in this war in Korea, and they're pinning all the blame for the war on communists. Any kind of communist. But all Julie and I have done is stand for the same principles we've had from the beginning. We believe the world should belong to the people who keep it running. Farmers, coal miners, bus drivers, and even overcompensating Jewish housewives and bumbling machine shop operators. Russia exploded its own atomic bomb in 1949. Oh, that must have been the one Julie told him how to build. Oddly enough, they didn't send us any royalty payments for it. Kind of high-handed of them, don't you think? I'm Natasha Sinyanovich. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for Act 3.